Robert is a nationally certified licensed professional counselor who has been providing services for individuals on the autism spectrum for more than 20 years. He is the creator of the Tristan Jevin Center for Recovery, a nonprofit trauma treatment center in Richmond, Missouri, specializing in the treatment of trauma, addictions, and autism. He's the author of The Life Recovery Method, which provides a new paradigm for treating trauma from an autism perspective, and the producer of the Mindful Recovery podcast. You can learn more about Robert's work by going to www.liferecoveryconsulting.org. So Robert, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us here today. Um, I'm really excited to hear your presentation. So just feel free to get going whenever you're, whenever you're ready to rock. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I did want to clarify that um, the liferecoveryconsulting.org has now converted to TJ, as in Thomas Jefferson, or my son, Tristan Jevin, tjrecovery.org. This is autism as a trauma event. Um, and, and what I mean by that is not that autism is caused by trauma. So I'm not saying that parents have been horrible to their children. Um, what I'm saying is that autism generally generates and causes trauma in individuals. I want to talk about some common expressions, comorbidities of autism, ADHD, anxiety, um, sensory motor integration difficulty is, is, and autism is almost always going to be there, is one of the key indicators. Um, high pain threshold. Now, when I say that uh, is almost always there, one thing we're going to talk about is that puberty, the whole game changes for individuals who are high functioning on the spectrum, or that's what we are calling them high functioning. Um, I think beside the point, but that that term is not one that I like a whole lot, but for lack of any better term or, or imagination on my part, we're going to go with that. Um, Oversensitive, undersensitive to sensory input. Uh, lack of fear to dangerous situations. This goes along with the high pain threshold. What teaches us generally is, is pain. Um, and if, if we're not feeling it, we're not getting the lesson as early. Um, so we have kiddos who are fascinated by water, but they have a complete lack of, of a fear of danger. And so they go running into the water, even though they can't swim and they end up drowning in the neighbor's pool. Um, perseveration, the ability to hyper-focus on one subject, topic, task um, for endless hours. This is why companies like Twitter and Google and the big tech companies really enjoy looking for people with, with minds that are very much on the spectrum because they can focus on a problem and, and perseverate on it until it's fixed. Um, often there will be a rules-bound orientation um, a, a real sense of what is fair and unfair. And even sometimes what I find is this inability to lie. The, 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 the lack of a filter means that I'm just going to be brutally honest with you, which I, personally I enjoy. Um, I, I like that in, in session. Um, we cut through all the games that way. I know exactly where you're at. Um, they tend to see the world much differently, much, um, than other people. So Temple Grandin talks a lot about uh, different types of thinkers, you know, people who are visual thinkers or logic thinkers or, and they will tend to be boxed into that one area. The other issue is executive functioning in that they uh, may have issues with executive functioning, which makes them 
see the world differently, it becomes very hard to break down processes and components. I want to talk about brain development a little bit and how this happens. And if you look at my book, The Life Recovery Method, Autism Treatment from a Trauma Perspective, what I talk about this in much more detail and not as much detail as I do now in my six or eight hour presentations, full day workshop I do on this because I have learned so much since I wrote the book six years ago about this development. I continue to research and dig, not just on this, but trauma in general is my fascination. How do we change the brain to begin with? And then how do we change it back? How do we begin to correct? So for the first two years of your life, pretty much only the right hemisphere is developing. And the left hemisphere is there, but it's just kind of dormant. It's just kind of sitting still well, the right hemisphere collects all these uh, area, all this information and, and about feeling and emotion and the right side of the brain. Um, what we find in autism is that there's often an underdevelopment in specific regions of the right hemisphere, the anterior cingulate, the amygdala may be affected um, on the right side, and that causes a delay in the development which causes a delay in the waking up of the left hemisphere at two years. Um, the left hemisphere then is responsible for logic, reasoning, language, expression, and that would. The interesting thing is that when I have been triggered um, by some event in the environment, we're gonna talk about what might trigger you if you have autism, but once I've been triggered into this fight or flight space, I find it very hard to communicate because that's an upper left quadrant kind of thing. And what happens is that often my right hemisphere will try and dominate and, and language becomes very emotional, right? And so that might be in a good way in, in, in a bonding situation, or it might be, you know, not so good way when I'm, I'm really freaked out because I don't understand my environment. One of the ways I know the right hemisphere is dominant is that I can't have a conversation with you. It's like talking to Charlie Brown's parents talking to a wall. Um, it's not going to do any good because conversation is left brain. Pruning and brain development, I want to talk about a little bit. From zero to two years old, your brain is developing connections at a very rapid pace. The newborn, you can see in the first slide here, there are 100 billion neurons that you're born with, but very few connections. And at one month, then there are more connections in the brain. And at nine months, we continue to grow connections until at two years, our brain is so overconnected, we have trillions more connections than we actually need in that space. So from two years old until adulthood, what should happen is the brain begins pruning away, just like a farmer would prune a good fruit tree away. And we say that what the, the neurons that fire together begin to wire together. Um, pruning continues then through adulthood that pruning is inefficient in kiddos with both trauma and autism, especially in autism. So imagine now that you have this brain that's completely overwired, overconnected. It's not pruning at the right rate. You walk into a room and where it may take me 10,000 connections to process the lighting situation and what is around me and whether or not I'm safe. Now, if I have a brain that's not pruning effectively, it may take me 10 million connections to make that decision. And you can see how that's much, much longer. If there's a tiger standing behind me, I don't have time to make that kind of decision. I need to do it quickly. 
identifying sensory needs becomes very important. They can fall into three parts. One thing I want you to imagine is if I turned off all the lights in the room you're in right now, uh, you couldn't see a thing anymore. Started playing like death metal music at ridiculous volume so you can't hear anything. And, and now something touches you from a random position at different times. What happens there is that you don't understand how to process everything going on. I mean, just in talking about it, I would imagine that you can feel some tension in your own body thinking about that situation. It becomes very frightening and very threatening very quickly. This is what we're talking about with kiddos who walk into a room and have sensory processing issues. Just the other day, there was a child uh, I'm seeing. He's about uh, seven, eight years old. He will not go through doorways. And dad's like, I don't know what it is he doesn't like about doors. I'm like, it's not the door. It's the new environment. The door is just the threshold to a new environment. And I come into this new environment and it takes me forever to process it. That feels very dangerous. The, there are essentially three types of sensory reactivity, although they fall in two categories. Underreactive, and these are the kids that are, are passive. The passive underreactives are the kids that it's really hard to motivate to do anything. They don't get excited about anything. They have completely turned off their ability to recognize emotion because that emotion is difficult to process and becomes very uncomfortable very quickly. And then you have seekers who can't seem to get enough sensory input. These are the kids that will often bang their heads on walls, scratch themselves until they bleed, stand right next to a TV with their, their ear at the speaker, uh, be flashing, be, be fascinated by flashy, sparkly lights that you might see at Christmas. Or So these are the kids that are seeking out input. I had a kiddo one time that was fascinated by the sound of sizzling. So he would take a towel and, and soak it in the sink. It was very smart. And then stick it in the toaster or stick it in the foreman grill so that he could hear the sizzling sound. Well, this was dangerous and he had actually started fire this way. And so mom and dad decided that they would just lock up all of the towels and stuff. This was a really smart kid. So what he did was strip down to his skivvies and pull his underwear off and soak it in water and then put it in there to solve. He's a great problem solver, let's face it. You know, you have to think about what is it this kid is seeking in this moment? He likes that sizzling sound. My thought in the meeting was, and this is one of the cases I discuss in the book is, let's get him like a rain stick that you can turn over and it sounds like rain, which also sounds like, you know, ask a big dude. It sounds like bacon sizzling. And so that took care of that problem. Like he would wear that rain stick out. Okay. So he was a sensory seeker. These are the kids that they need to, like this same kid was very strong sensory seeker, but the school wasn't seeing that. And so all they knew was when he was having a meltdown, let's remove him to the sensory room, which essentially removed all sensory input from him. And that wasn't what he needed. What he needed was the sensory input because for him, that became kind of a grounding space, something I could focus on in kind of a mindfulness activity that would help me to dissociate from all the stuff I don't understand around me. Overreactive is the other type. Those two were the underreactive to sensitive to sensory input. This one is overreactive. Aaron Likens is a man that wrote a book here in, in Kansas, which is our neighboring state. Um, 
called Living Life Unfiltered. That was the way he described living with what at that time he referred to as Asperger's and probably still does, although the DSM-5 has just put everything on a spectrum. He was very, very overreactive. He described not being able to filter out noises and when it got really bad, feeling like his body was on fire. I had a kiddo one time who couldn't filter out the sensation of raindrops and because of what is co-occurring sometimes is synesthesia or the mixing up of sensory input, for him, rain or water dropping on his skin felt like fire. And so mom was struggling with why wouldn't he take a shower? And I asked him and he said, it hurts. And we began talking about ways of getting around that sensory sensitivity. You may have vestibular problems that may, the gravity issues like uh, where, where, oh no, I'm, I'm getting vertigo all the time. That's a vestibular problem. Proprioceptive problems. Where is my body in space? These kids might become like very kind of seem very clumsy, bump into things a lot. But the truth is they just don't have any real sense of their spatial boundaries. Proprioception is the issue there. So they, I have an adult who was not in his life diagnosed with autism issues, but he began identifying his sensory issues and creating what we call a sensory diet, which means you're feeding your brain what it needs in order to stay calm and regulated. One of the things he had that was big were the proprioceptive issues. So he got a rebounder, a little mini trampoline, and it's changed his whole life to be able to just bounce on that when he's getting dysregulated because that proprioceptive motion then creates a brain reset for him. So a sensory diet is removing the things that individuals don't need around them that are causing dysregulation or applying things like the, the rain stick to this kid that needs that to help regulate. So meeting those sensory needs is huge. In schools, what that looks like is here we call it an IEP. It's a school plan for kids with special needs that says this is how they're going to need to be to be taught. This is how they learn best. This is what they will need. Part of that needs to be sensory breaks. And the younger the kid is, the more often we need that sensory break for the brain. And as they get older, they might not need it as much. That's one of the interesting things about the brain pruning. And I realize I talk at a million miles an hour here when I get excited about things. One of the things that we about pruning that is interesting to me is that in kiddos who are high functioning, the really smart, smart kiddos, when they hit puberty, when, when you hit puberty, sensory challenges are liable to change anyway. Any growth spurt, anything that involves hormones going on in the body seems to really mess with these sensory issues at times. Sometimes they get better, sometimes they get worse. In, in the case of really high functioning individuals, what happens is that after puberty, their brain starts to prune at a faster rate than their neurotypical, for lack of a better word, peers. Um, and by the time they are in their 20s, pretty much their brain has caught up in the pruning area with their neurotypical peers. I want to talk about emotional regulation, and here's why. More of the work that I do, and I'm, I'm being conscious of time here, more and more of the work I do involves being able to observe and just not react to my emotions. I, I create space for a response, a determined response, instead of just a knee-jerk reaction. What might be setting me off that you're not seeing if I have autism issues is just the sensory noise around me when the dogs got out, it was very distracting to me. And 
that that kind of thing becomes distracting. So if you imagine walking into a room that you are new to and how long it might take you to process that environment, how long do you feel unsafe in that environment before you can normalize? Because your brain is designed to assume that anything it doesn't understand is not safe. And so in keeping with the idea of, of therapy for neurodiverse populations, one of the things I want to do is, is, is really have my nonverbal communication game down because that kiddo that doesn't want to come through the doorway, he's escalated. He's in this part of his brain. And when he's in this part of his brain, the reactive fight or flight part of the brain, he's not thinking logically at all. That short circuits sends everything back down into the body. Um, that's again, another trauma lecture. But what that means is I can't take the four to six seconds it's necessary for me to decide how to respond to a situation because this part of my brain is gonna make a decision, pick up a stick, run away or freeze in place in 0.2 seconds, 30 times faster. That's why whether it's addiction or trauma or autism, I start from a place of teaching just basic grounding and mindfulness exercises. Point being that I want to slow my body's responses down as much as I can so that I create a space out of which I can respond to that potential threat, out of which I can begin to calm my brain enough that I can attach to you. Again, attachment and attunement, these things that make us feel safe in the world, they are an upper brain process. So one of the most important things we can do with kiddos is recognize, reflect, and normalize emotion in them. It's not going to do any good if this kiddo's in meltdown, and I can't see why. I can't see that it's just the turning of the fan blades that he's feeling threatened by, or the sound of a buzz from a TV, or even a power line outside that, that I can't hear, but this kiddo's obviously keying into and can't filter out, and that's causing dysregulation, lots of emotion to come up. But again, if I'm in this part of my brain, I cannot talk to you logically about your emotion and whether it's rational or not. What I have to do is just recognize it and then reflect it and then normalize it. And that is a body space thing. So when the child gets wound up in my office, I might look at him and just smile and say, you're really excited right now, right? I'm, I am reflecting that emotion back to him so he can begin to understand it. So much of emotion is energy that I have often parents say to me, I don't know what happened. We were at a birthday party. He was having a great time with his friends. And then all of a sudden it was meltdown mode. Well, for him, the energy of fear and the energy of excitement and joy probably feel very much the same in the body. And because he's been cut off from his body so early, just because the sensory world was so threatening, he's not processing that emotion, not understanding what it is. He's just feeling the energy. And at some point, that energy becomes overwhelming. And I am going to react to it. I am going to want to regulate out of that space by either seeking or withdrawing from, from sensory input. So that energy of emotion then is very, very important. But I can't explain that to a kid or even an adult who's dysregulated. They're not listening to me. They're angry. They're raging. They're fearful. They're not going to have a logical conversation. So again, I need to recognize, reflect, and normalize that emotion. 
you seem really angry to me right now. And that's okay. It's okay to be angry. I'm just wondering what could have upset you? Do you see the body difference in me? A, very open-palmed, very non-threatening. And B, I'm talking slower and softer. And I'm using a tone that you're not going to hear and understand my words, but you're going to key into what I am saying to you. I am recognizing your emotion. Therefore, I am recognizing you. I see you. I'm reflecting what I see. And then I'm normalizing that. You're not in trouble for that. Let's just discuss it. This whole process is teaching this child to slow down when that energy, that emotion starts to feel like it's out of hand. So I want to talk a little bit about a couple of cases if I can. And that's going to get me more into some of these areas, especially OT, the occupational therapy and the importance of that, because it's not just about the up down brain. It's also about the right left brain for the first two years of your life. That right brain, we said, is, is connecting to emotions, feelings, sensations in the body. And then when it's done, it wakes up the left brain and the logical, rational speech pattern part of the of the brain begins to wake up and develop the problem is often in kids with autism we have an underdevelopment of the central region of the brain called the corpus callosum right and what that means is those two hemispheres don't do such a good job of communicating with each other so i become very emotional i feel this energy in my body and i begin reacting to it and i'm not thinking about there's no way to rationalize what's going on. Oh, I'm just having a problem processing now. If I wait a few minutes, this will calm down. That's not happening because of this underdevelopment. And this is why OT is so effective in kids with autism is it forces that right, left, right, left, right, left. There's a good deal of research out there, beginning with the research on fetal pigs by Temple Grandin that then in the 70s, which then in the, the 90s became research on a sensory enrichment in children through an outfit called Mendability, who did a lot of studies, would teach parents to do OT stuff over the computer and then meet with them weekly to tweak their techniques so they could be doing this with the child every day. And a lot of this is right-left rhythmic activity because that's how our brain begins to learn. And what we found with this sensory enrichment programs in the research is that it began to create a thickening in the corpus callosum. And what have I found in my own work personally is that it begins to increase this kind of right-left ability to regulate my emotion and course correct. So I wanna move up and over, right? This is how all information comes in. We process from bottom to top and from right to left. And if we're not processing that way, then we have an issue there, right? because this left rational part is the part where we begin to say, okay, you know, it's not actually a tiger, it's just a picture of a tiger. I'm responding because I was attacked by a tiger and it kind of triggers my PTSD. We can slow all that down. Okay, so one of the most important things we can do then is to begin setting up a sensory diet, understanding those issues, and then begin with the OT and, and teaching mindful attention. So this is the case of Gary. He was a kiddo at, had been developing fairly normally, hitting the markers that you would expect to see until he was five. And I suspect at five, growth spurt happened, sensory issues changed, and suddenly I'm nonverbal now because my world has been so, become so confusing that I'm kind of trapped in here trying to make sense of it. 
this is why I talk so much about energy. Think about people with dementia. At the end of the day, they begin to sundown. And one of the reasons they begin to sundown is because you only have so much energy and your brain uses more energy than anything, any other organ in your body. And when things are difficult to process because of issues with sensory input or issues with executive functioning, which we haven't gotten to, but we eventually will, um, which is the ability to make break down processes into decisions to switch from one activity to another without a lot of confusion. Um, when these things aren't functioning well, um, it's very hard to keep that energy we need for later in the day. It gets used up. And once that energy is gone, then our brain no longer is going to win that battle to try and make sense of the environment around us. And we get trapped in the sundowning if we have dementia or we have a meltdown if it's autism or any number of other things or if we're an addict and reacting to trauma we reach for a drug to numb out so <clears throat> what the research has shown and what i went into this situation with was the knowledge that if you institute a good sensory diet <clears throat> and you increase ot and you begin teaching some basic mindfulness the research shows that the need for behavioral supports then falls off, often to zero, because what I'm doing really with this is helping the brain to regulate. And so I don't need to act out to tell you that I'm confused or I'm scared. At five years old, he simply quits speaking and he is still to this day, mostly nonverbal. Although mom was not sold on my ability to really help this kid because she'd had three other professionals with bigger degrees than mine working with this kiddo and they had just spent the entire time being assaulted, attacked. He was in meltdown mode. I started a little differently. I didn't even interact with him for the first session and a half, almost two sessions. I would just watch him and make little comments about what he was doing. So it was obvious I was paying attention to him. He would hang upside down on the couch. It was kind of a proprioceptive thing for him. And I would just look at him and grin and say, my, you're a limber little monkey, aren't you, right? And he would just smile or giggle and go back to what he was doing. So the first thing we talked about is what can we change in your, in your environment here in this apartment to create a sensory diet for him that he needs? And we put a freestanding sensory swing in there. We got some lights in there. We got some, some padding in there so he could bounce around if he wanted to so that all these kind of sensory needs then would be met because he was very much a seeker in that space. He was fixated on gummies. Absolutely, where mom had to keep them on a high shelf, locked away, because he would just sit and go through boxes of gummies and not stop. So once he sat down next to me, and I could see mom's eyes get big, she was worried I was going to get physically assaulted, but this five-year-old kid, there's only so much damage he can do. But he put his hand on my arm and he just ran it up my arm like that, very gently. That was a signal to me that it was okay to, to be in his world, that he was no longer threatened by me. And so we began what I called the gummy game. I had mom get the gummies out of the cupboard. And we spent 15, 20 minutes going over the gummies, just looking at what shape they were, making a mindfulness exercise, a grounding exercise to calm the brain out of these gummies. What did they smell like? What did they look like? What shape were they hard? Were they soft? Just exploring them. And then 
if he could tell me verbally what color the gummy was, he got to eat it. So now I have created a calmer state through this grounding exercise and have given him the motivation to keep it together long enough to process this word. Out of the six gummies in there, he gave me three correct colors verbally. And it was the first time in years he had spoken. Now he's a teen and mom's very excited every time he decides to speak. Um, but he's still somewhat trapped in that sensory world, but he's got friends now. He hangs out with people in public now. He can manage that space without meltdowns. I mean, this kid has made significant progress because we began helping him to control his environment a little more so it wasn't so assaultive on his brain. So that's the case of Gary. Um, I, his mother now, years later, seven, eight years later, his mother is a member of my board for my nonprofit because she was an amazing advocate. She was all about it. She was mama bear when somebody told her a kid couldn't do something. So when I created the nonprofit, I really wanted her on the board to help other parents when we were dealing with these kinds of things. The case of John, I want to talk about John a little bit, and it looks like I'm going to have time because he was such a complex and difficult case, and he was um, so, so, so successful in the end, and it just began with this kind of stuff. He was diagnosed with, with autism level one, which is what we would call high-functioning autism. Also had PTSD from a lot of bullying in school. Unfortunately, not just by the children, but by teachers at times. Um, and because he was in early in his life, this was in the 90s when his mother and father adopted him from a Russian orphanage. And he was diagnosed with a reactive attachment disorder as well. So imagine that like the autism has me makes it very difficult for me to understand my emotions, what I'm feeling. In addition, I don't trust you enough to bond with you. I have a reactive attachment because as mother described it, they walked into the crib room. There were 200 cribs there and no noise at all. That's not natural. A baby should be crying because they're wet or they're hungry or they're, but there were a minimum number of nurses. Remember this was right after the wall fell and a huge amount of poverty in Russia and, and, out of that, resources were slim. And so you had three or four nurses trying to tend to 200 babies. What happens is if that baby in that, that period of where it should be learning attunement, it cries because it's hungry or it's just wet or it needs comfort. And you come over and pick it up and you hold it next to you and you talk very softly. And suddenly it's a little dis dysregulated autonomic nervous system can feel your heart rate and feel your breathing and hear your calm voice and begins to automatically attune to your system and calm down. Now imagine a situation where you cry and cry and cry and no one comes. Eventually you stop crying and you stop asking for help because you are learning through experience that help is not coming. So his, his early life, the first six months or so were in that orphanage situation. And that's where that bonding ability to attune and to bond was damaged. He had severe emotional dysregulation. Again, I, I talk about emotion as an energy now and not being able to understand where that energy is coming from because the sensory overload that I experienced was so intense that I just learned how to dissociate from my body experience very early on. So now when I'm challenged with some of that, 
I just separate from it. So the process that we're doing is slowly introducing you to these mindfulness exercises. So you create a little space to be able to hold that energy without reacting to it immediately. So we're talking about severe emotional dysregulation in this kiddo at 17, he would run out of the house, run down to the highway and lay down in the middle of the highway in a dramatic you know, attempt to have someone end his life. He was suicidal. <clears throat> he had such sensory overload in crowds, he would not go to Walmart. He would not go to the grocery store. He would not go to anywhere pretty much. He wouldn't even come upstairs and sit down with his case manager, his service coordinator, to discuss what he wanted out of his life in the next year, what the goals were that he had for himself. He had to stay downstairs where it was dark and sensory was limited. And the, the service coordinator would sit up the front top of the stairs. That's actually what our first two sessions were like. And then I noticed that he began, he would roll this little blue ball around in his hands and it had little spikes all over it. It was basically a cat toy that he had uh, taken a string off of and he was rolling it around in his hand because he liked that tactile sensation. He was creating sensory input that he could focus on that was helping him drown out the sensory input that seemed overwhelming to him. That if that is not grounding and mindfulness, I don't know what is. And so we created a mindfulness exercise with this little blue ball that he used all the time. And what we did was we went slowly from using that as an exercise to keeping that in my hand while I come up the stairs and sit at the table with you and have a conversation that's engaged with you all the time, rolling this ball around, rolling this ball around, and just paying attention to how it feels going through our fingers, what the color's like, is it hard, is it soft, is it kind of rubbery in between, <clears throat> creating this object as the center of my focus in the here and now, because anxiety, stress, this is always about what might happen or what has happened in the past happening again, which is about what might happen. And so if I can ground in, in some object here in front of me in the here and now, I, I cannot occupy both the past and the future and the present. I'm stuck in the present. And unless there's a tiger behind me, the present is safe. And so this mindfulness exercise really is a way of re-regulating the brain and moving back up here where my rational brain can come on line and say, look, there's nothing threatening us around us right now. We also, because he had some serious physical, he was an athlete, a really good athlete until he busted his knee and he had serious back and knee pain from a car wreck. And we began using the same kind of technique, a mindfulness technique to do pain management with him. So it took about two to three months to get him to the point he would come up and sit down and have a conversation with me or then go somewhere with me. But getting like out of the car and, and going into a store, not going to happen initially. So what we started doing was keeping the little ball in our pocket and just feeling it as I walked through Walmart. Uh, years later, this kiddo, you know, the, the, his service coordinator refers to him as a miracle kid because the next year she came and he was engaged in an hour-long conversation with her about what he would like to happen in his future. He not only started going to Walmart and to grocery stores with mom, but eventually now he holds a job in a grocery store working with the public and is able to manage that space. He actually now drives, has his own car that he's paid for through the employment that he gained. 
And so we're not talking about minor changes that we can make in people. And it starts very simple. You know, one of the things about recovery work is that we say, you know, it's a simple process. It's not an easy process. And this is a very simple process of teaching people to begin to regulate their brains so that we can work on them in a way that forces growth and, and begins to account for some of these issues. Mindfulness works in these other areas of autism too with executive functioning, which is my ability. If you take a child with seriously compromised executive functioning into a grocery store and you stand them in the cereal aisle and you say, you can choose anyone that you want, you're asking for a meltdown and overload because that's too many decisions for me to try to break down at one time. Think about when you're stressed and you have to think about what you want to make for dinner that night. It doesn't go so well, right? Because your brain is already in stress mode and your executive functioning is not working as well and it's hard to break down those processes. If, however, you take that same child into the grocery store and you say, you can have Cheerios or cornflakes or wheat thins. They'll make a decision that quick because they've been told they can choose, but only from three things. And that's much easier on their brain. What we find is that executive functioning because of that growth in the center and the corpus callosum, that executive functioning really begins to improve with mindfulness practice also. So this is where I start with everyone, trauma, autism, addictions, whatever the issue is, we start with being able to slow down. See, the point of mindfulness is not to control my thoughts and emotions. You're a human being, you can't do that. Um, thoughts are gonna come up, dark ones that you don't want, funny ones in the middle of a funeral. You know, These things are gonna happen. Emotions are gonna rise up. I'm gonna feel anger and not always understand why I'm so tense and angry. The point of mindfulness is to keep those thoughts and emotions from controlling me, from running my behavior. So now I can, I can recognize the tension in my body and say, you know, I'm just really, my shoulders are tense. What's going on? Well, my kids have annoyed me and I'm just wound up and I need to take a minute. Paying attention to that body instead of cutting off from it is what this is all about. So I have that early warning sign that, oh, I'm getting really stressed out. I need to take a break. My daughter's 21 years old. She's at, at, at K-State University here in the States. And um, she has recognized this in me. And she will say, you're getting salty. You need to go spend some time in your wood shop. That's my calm place, right? So this, the whole point is to get back in touch with what's going on in our body so we can process it and not respond to it immediately. This is my uh, Robert at tjrecovery.org is how you can get a hold of me by email. If you have questions, this was really quick. Um, if you get a hold of me by email, I'll sign you up and let you know when I have more extensive trainings coming out. Um, we're getting ready to quantify this process that I call the life recovery method, um, not just in addictions, I mean, not just in autism, but also in addictions and trauma recovery. So there are very specific methods that I use, and, and mostly it's about layering supports in a way that we're actually doing some good. We can't really start with cognitive therapies when I'm trapped in this part of my brain. We have to move me back up here and then we can talk rationally and I have the capability for cognition. I don't have that when I am majorly messed up. Um, my phone number, I just realized is wrong on here. It's 310-9341, so correct that if you're keeping track. 
<clears throat> but the best way, because I know most of you are in Europe, the best way to get a hold of me is by email. And it doesn't take me as long to respond to email between sessions. I don't know what I'm getting into with a phone call. So often it will be the next day before I can respond. There's a bunch of research that kind of supports what I'm saying. Okay, Robert, thank you so much for that. That was a fascinating yeah. presentation. Is there a process or method you go about when initially consulting patients or do your methods change with the patient? That's a really good question. Um, to some extent, they'll change with the patient. But the first thing I need to find out, whether it's addictions or it's autism or it's trauma work, is what is it that is dysregulating your brain, right? What are your triggers? And so for me, that starts with a good sensory assessment. And if you want to email me, if you're watching, I don't care if I get a flood of emails, if you want to email me or what I'll do is, I think I will send to you a link where they can download my sensory assessment, which is a really good um, way of just kind of covering the five areas of the sensory, you know, what's going on with my proprioception, my vestibular issues, my, my sensory input, as far as sound goes. So it's a list of questions that will say basically, um, likes walking in the sand barefoot. That's one of the questions on there, right? And so there'll be three choices. Either he constantly wants to do that, he seeks it out, or he, he's terrified of it and will not do that under any circumstances. Or he's just like every other kid, he's kind of like, meh, you know, whatever. Um, and this is a good way of starting out with just seeing where, what areas those sensory issues are in. Now I have an idea of what dysregulates your brain and we have a place to start. So always I start with figuring out what is dysregulating the brain and then teaching some basic mindfulness exercises to almost everyone to begin regulating the brain when I feel tension come up. Body scan exercises are fantastic because most people who are dealing with trauma have learned very early on out of that trauma, I cannot control the feelings in my body. And so I will just separate from them, right? And I will just, there. I'll dissociate. Anytime I have a trigger or a feeling or anything that I don't like, I'm just gone. And while that's a wonderful tool to have at times, it's not very functional in Walmart or at the grocery store, right? And so this is why we start with that body scan is to reintegrate, get used to again, paying attention to how I'm feeling and having some faith I can actually do something about that, that it doesn't have to overwhelm or control me. So I got a, a, a really a good friend of mine. So this was not a criticism. It was her making me aware of what was getting said in the community, which is a small community. She said, you're getting a, a reputation as a one trick pony. Like no matter who comes in your office, you start with mindfulness. And I said, that's almost true. No matter who comes in my office, I start with teaching them how to regulate their brain. And then we can work on the rewiring process, right? So for me, that's what that's about. I hope that explained it. 100%. So just to sort of clarify, um, the, the main thing is to, whenever you, let's say someone listening to this, um, they might have a tendency like to whenever they're feeling like highly stressed or anything they get into tense or they'll just like rush around and they'll get into like a really fast mode of being and this exacerbates the problem 
So your yeah. first your first step there is a body scan to slow to slow down and to ground. Not, necess not necessarily the first step. Uh, a body scan is something I want them to practice every day. Practice it when you don't need it. Then when you need it, it will be there, right? Probably the first thing I would do if someone's dysregulated in meltdown mode is teach them this object focus. What I do is a basic grounding exercise. A lot of people use the five, four, three, two, one process, which is using all of your senses. Five things I see, four things I hear, three things I feel. That's too complex for someone who can't think in their brain. And every time you try to challenge their brain with a new thought process, it's just adding energy to a dysregulated system. Mine starts off a little different. Pick two senses. I don't care what they are. You don't have to keep track of them. You don't have to think about that. But I want you to start with two deep breaths because what happens when I breathe? I'm literally reconnecting my brain and my body. And if I'm focusing on my breath, I'm paying attention to my body. And so two deep breaths, right? And then look around and tell me three things you see. And then two more deep breaths. And then listen for three things you can hear. Now, if a child has sensory sensitivity to noise, we don't want to use three things I can hear. We can say, what are three things you feel around you? Or a lot of DBT therapists will use an apple or an orange or a citrus flavor. What do you feel when you taste this? Something to ground you in the physical reality of that moment. And then I end with two breaths. Anxiety, panic attacks will be done like that with this basic grounding exercise. Because you cannot exist in your fear, which is in the future, and exist in, in the present moment, which is perfectly safe and not threatening at all, right? And I, I, I jokingly tell people this doesn't work if there's a tiger behind you, right? But we're assuming you're in a safe environment and what we're doing with that exercise is slowing you down enough, reconnecting you to your body and making your brain realize there's nothing threatening me in this space, right? And then we can move back up here and then we can rationalize. And then we make those statements of, reflecting and normalizing emotion like oh my gosh you got really out of whack there you were really upset I wonder what caused that right then once I'm in a calm state we can begin to process why it happened how it happened and begin working on how I can keep that from happening in the future trauma and autism is a fascinating area and thank you for the presentation I've just ordered your book and looking at the title are you advocating treating autism or treating trauma? It seems to me this is an important distinction. And I work with clients to treat trauma whilst understanding their autism. Could it be that some of the features that we label as autistic traits, such as routines and more rigid thinking, are responses to trauma? That's exactly what they are. It's a brilliant question. I love it. And I've had people ding me over that word treatment before. Um, but to me, Anytime I'm dysregulated by anything and I go to a therapist for it, I'm seeking treatment. I'm saying something's not okay with the way I'm functioning. Can you help me? Right? So I think, are you treating the trauma or are you treating the autism is a chicken or the egg question in a way, right? Um, I am treating the trauma in every case. But the trauma in this case is induced by the sensory issues, the executive functioning issues, the other things that come along with autism. So what I want to do is 
train you to deal with the trauma effect of that environment enough that you can regulate your brain and then improve functioning in other areas. Because when you're dysregulated, I cannot teach you how to improve your executive functioning. I cannot teach you how to do a better job with social recognition and, and interfacing with other people when it seems so threatening. One of the things I've noticed is bullying becomes a much more traumatic experience for individuals on the spectrum than for neurotypical peers. They're much less likely to be able to just let go of it and move on or resolve that. And so what I have come to believe, and I'm not done the research on this myself, and, and, um, but what I have seen and what I've come to believe is that this inability to resolve that emotion at times over bullying or ways that I've been wronged or fairness is I latch onto that pain. And then that combines with my ability to perseverate on something. And I start perseverating on that pain and I get like a pit bull on a steak bone. I'm not letting go. Right. And so the more I try and rationalize with you about that, the worse it gets because you're down here, you're not in the rational part of your brain. Hmm. So again, it's about what, what, what is my body communicating? I tend to be a very calm person, which can be annoying to people who like to worry all the time. But <laughs> my friend Amy, when she was worrying about the, our national exam here for counselors is called the NCE, stressing out about it. And I'm like, you, you're making great grades in one of the better programs in the US. Why are you? She said, some of us need more than a pulse to be okay. And I said, well, that must suck because <laughs> if I wake up in the morning and I can breathe and I feel my heart rate, I'm good, right? <laughs> 100%. And so I have to bring that body posture, that annoying attitude towards other people so that they can begin to attune to me and calm in that space, right? And this is where the attachment disorder stuff comes in. That's why we see a lot of kids on the spectrum misdiagnosed as reactive attachment at times because we're not helping them get past the panic of what's going on and my not being able to process enough that they can begin to attach. That's all an upper brain processed. So I'm not going to attach to you if I'm afraid, whether I'm afraid of you or someone else. Hello. Hi. Hi. I'm blown away by your presentation, by the way. Thank you. Excellent. So thank you for, um, you know, sharing the slides and also the assessment of the five mm -hmm. senses as well. I'm, I'm a drama therapist and I, it just made me think about a particular client that I had who, um, who was struggling because as soon as the client hit puberty, a family member who he had an okay relationship with, he completely avoided um for a number of years so my question is um can individuals particular family members cause a child with high functioning level one sensory discomfort and if so what advice or guidance could you give these individuals to help and also at the same time what guidance would you give my client for example to tolerate whatever sensory dysregulations are coming up <clears throat> it's a big question so if so here's, here's, um, I mean, you're a trauma therapist, so your brain probably goes the same place mine does. <laughs> when at puberty, someone starts avoiding another family member, you're thinking, uh-oh, what's going on, right? Um, but absolutely, yes. You're, you're thinking the right way about, 
So I'll give you a case example from one of my own clients. And that is a young man who was, he was about six foot three and went about 250 pounds. He was not a small boy. And he, he would become dysregulated and violent very quickly. And two things would set him off, his father's tone of voice and his sister's tone of voice. And given with his father could be very verbally aggressive and angry and not understanding himself. So look, I, I tell my wife all the time, if you want to stay married to me, don't sound like my mother, right? <laughs> because that's a trigger for us, right? As we're growing up, that becomes a trigger for us. And so not all triggers are necessarily sensory, but it very much could be a sensory issue. It could be the cologne that his uncle is wearing that really bothers him. And he doesn't know how to communicate that, but he definitely does not want to be around this person. It could be, I had a client one time come in, one of the offices that I have is my little hobbit hole that I share with like 10 other therapists in the same, we all have offices in the same building. And someone had sprayed lilac in the bathroom, you know, and my, my, office is three doors down from the bathroom but I had a client who had really strong sensory issues come in and she's like somebody sprayed lilac in here and it was only our second session so I didn't know she had a sensitivity to that right mm -hmm. I said not here but probably the bathroom and so we had to go through like this process of being able to re-regulate after that dysregulated me a little bit right one thing we, we also find is that sometimes they experience synesthesia which is the mixing up of sensory input, right? So you might hear a certain tone and see a color, or you might, <clears throat> someone might say a word and you associate a number or a color with that, right? Or a feeling with that, like um, the color yellow for, if you look up Wendy Lampkin, W-E-N-D-Y, she is, an English woman who did a TED talk on autism and what it was like. That's a really good 15, 20 minute video to watch on what it's like to experience these sensory issues. And she talks about the color yellow feeling like a green slimy goo to her all over her body, right? Or the sound of, of a train or a vacuum cleaner really dysregulating her. And you will actually see it happen in the TED talk. You don't, you don't just go up on stage and give a TED talk. You've practiced it at least a thousand times by that point. But when the noise of the uh, vacuum cleaner starts, she loses track completely. It completely dysregulates her brain for a minute. And you can see her just stop and take a breath and re-regulate in that space. So I guess the shorter answer is yes, that can happen. Right? Mm -hmm. It can be, and it might be something you don't even recognize or they don't know they're doing. And so really questioning that person about what is it that makes you feel uncomfortable? The best thing we can do is again, return to the body. Where do I feel it in the body? What is that telling me about? I hold different stress in different places. I hold my financial stress in my chest like I can't breathe, right? I hold the stress of my family when the demands are building up in my shoulders. And I can tell by where my stress is, what that's telling me. But if you have a lot of trauma that you haven't overcome, or in the case of autism, you have a lot of sensory trauma or other things coming in at you that are creating trauma responses. 
you're not in touch with that at all. And that's why we use the body scan every day. I like to use it twice a day. There's also um, a really good resource out there called SAND, S-A-N-D, if you go on YouTube and look up SAND therapy for autism. There are a bunch of videos that are very, very, they're very right, left oriented. And then they have bilateral stimulation with the music going on. Those are great exercises for helping kids regulate. And if we do those things every day, we're basically retraining the brain to not react first thing, but to breathe. That's gonna be our autonomic response is we're gonna train ourselves that our initial reaction is no longer to freeze up or run away or fight, but to just take a deep breath. And that's gonna slow everything down. And then I can decide what I wanna do. The TED talk you mentioned by Wendy Lampkin, is that, is that right? Yeah. L-A-M-P-K-I-N, Wendy Lampkin. Wendy Lampkin, okay. And do you know the title of the talk by any chance? No? I, I don't, but it's on autism. It's her TED Talk. It'll be the one you find. It'll pop up when you type in Wendy Lampkin Autism on YouTube. Okay. It'll, it'll be the first thing that pops up. Awesome, awesome. All right. Well, Robert, um, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so yeah. much for sharing some of your insights and your wisdom with us today. Um, Thanks for having me. Have you got any sort of... Uh, request of the audience or anything that you'd sort of recommend people doing do after this talk as a as a follow-up as a follow-up just get a hold of me if you're interested in learning more about this going more in depth with a six-hour day-long online thing let me know um, I do them pretty regularly two or three times a year um, if you have questions that I didn't get to here please email them to me. You'll probably get a response today. It's a Sunday and I'm being lazy and not doing anything but watching football. So, you know, or being in my wood shop, but you will get a response very quickly if you have questions because I love geeking out on this kind of stuff, you know, um, and I'm just full of it enough to pull it off most of the time. So. <laughs> okay, okay, awesome. Robert, thank you so much. It's great to meet you and I wish right. you the best of luck going forward. We'll be in touch during the week. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Bye-bye.